Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Katherine Shen. It's been one week since the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action and race-conscious college admission programs. Connecticut colleges and universities have responded fairly unanimously. Hearst Connecticut reported that every school that replied to their request for comment expressed frustration with the decisions. Today, we hear from admissions officials and college administrators, including Eastern Connecticut State University President Elsa Nunez. But first, how are students responding? Two University of Connecticut students joins us today. We have Irene Pham, who's a rising senior, and Devin Pierre, who is now in UConn's law school. And we also have Alyssa Nadwerney, who is an NPR correspondent covering higher education and college access, here to answer your questions. Thank you to all three of you for joining us this morning. And for our listeners, what are your questions and concerns about the affirmative action decisions? Or do you have thoughts on the Supreme Court's other decision on student loan debt? Give us a call, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Devin, I want to start with you. You wrote an op-ed for the Connecticut Mirror back in October, basically anticipating this decision. You also dug into the history of affirmative action and critiqued some of Justin, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas's opposition to it. What was going through your mind when you first heard of the recent decision? I thought the decision was, I guess, kind of predictable because, you know, three of the justices, Roberts, Alito, and Thomas, have already ruled on affirmative action. So the only question was, how was the Trump appointees going to vote? And I thought it was very obvious what they were going to do. So I, I guess it was just, I, I was checking up every single day on the new decisions. And while there were some surprises, I thought that was a very odd, that, I guess that's just what I was thinking. I was like, well, of course that happened. That was kind of obvious. Like I kind of felt the same way when they overturned abortion last year, the, the right to you know, a national right to abortion last year. I just thought it was kind of obvious. And it was just like, well, that happened. Well, and then after after you were like, well, I saw this coming. What were your thoughts after that? You know, when you had some time to sort of digest uh, the implications and whatnot, you know, what what were what are your thoughts about that? Well, first of all, I realized how smart it was of me to apply to like law school really early in advance because that was also another thing I did. I Because I was applying last year and I thought it was important to apply earlier because i'm because as you can tell from the patient side i was a huge i'm a huge supporter of race conscientious policy so i guess after it digested i was just thinking how lucky i was to be like the last group who will go and have a diverse class because we don't really know what the next you know the next group of children who go to college will look at but from what the universities are telling us it looks like it's going to be a lot less diverse well, and that's very for thank you of you, Devin, and what I can't imagine the experience. And Irene, I want to bring you in. What what about you? You know, what was going through your mind when you first heard of the decision? 
my first thought was like fearing about what my family would say because we live in a very predominantly um white town and they don't get a lot of education on affirmative action and why it's in place and why it's removed so then i began to do like a little bit of um scrolling through social media to see what other people would say and i see a lot of um back and forth arguments between um who supports it and who doesn't and like why they're fighting and it is the way in which um it becomes there's this like it becomes a more clear divide between um asians who are who have been here for some generations uh especially uh during or before the civil rights movement and new era immigrants who have just arrived and they don't have the education nor have they worked with um black and hispanic americans that have fought together uh for their rights um so i think it's becoming more apparent that white supremacy is trying to incorporate more people into their agenda um and we see this a lot in other demographics um because um historically uh, Irish and Italian people weren't considered white, but now they are because they're trying to incorporate more people to um, further like an argument or like stay in power. Um, and that's happening with Asians. Well, I want to dig into that a little bit more with you, Irene, but I also want to ask both of you, you know, what did policies like this mean for you and fellow students when you are applying for colleges? And let's start with you, Irene. I didn't necessarily feel very connected to my Asianness when I was in high school. So I didn't um, mention it a lot uh, in my college essay. And I instead focused on my queerness. But further down along the line, I realized how important that Asianness was to my identity. And it's because I was very racially isolated as a kid. Um, and I feel like lots of other um, students are also like when you're that young and you're like determining what you want for the rest of your life you have no idea what you're doing basically and you have no idea um what you're going to experience when you're in college because college is a much more diverse place and you're going to experience uh, what you actually would like to do um instead of uh, exploring your options in high school and I think um, uh, I guess the world wants you to sort of cater to a marketable part of yourself. But in reality, I think um, that you will find true satisfaction with your life and yourself if you go to a diverse place and you dig out your niche and explore yourself. Well, um, I, I really but, think what you just said was so powerful, and I wonder if that resonates with a lot of students. And I think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. You know, asking a 16, 17, 18 year old to know what they want to do with their lives—it's really challenging. And and I want to ask Devin. You know, you just you just mentioned you have this live experience actually applying for law school right before this decision. But do you remember if this policy meant anything for you when you were applying for college um, that first time around? I, I don't think I it did that much the first time around because i guess you kind of just take like have 
because you know it's, it's like Irene said when you go to college it's a lot more diverse than it is in high school I guess you kind of just take that for granted until you realize that because I mean I know you, a lot of colleges are still saying they're dedicated to diversity but going forward they all seem to be saying the same thing that's going to be much harder and there's going to be impacts and so the first time when I applied I just again and, and I got into colleges and even when I was an undergrad at UConn I think I just took that diversity and all the different people I saw and just the multiculturalism in general, I just took it for granted. You, you, you don't really expect the Supreme Court to overturn, was it 50 years of precedent so aggressively, but I mean, that's just what this court does. So, And Irene, you're also an art and arts history major focused on painting. And so can you talk to us about how your studies factors into this conversation today? Um, I, yeah, I'd love to talk about my art because my um, artistic uh, direction right now is always changing. That's why I say right now um, is exploring how um, race and uh, racial events have impacted my identity. So my ancestors and my, my grandparents and my mom uh, came from Vietnam to escape the war my grandfather was a soldier so he had to go to america and i guess i think farm or like do some manual labor uh i think around the fall of saigon which was in 75 so my mom only had my grandmom and was a single parent raising two kids and eventually they had to go over to america in the 90s to reconcile um and that i i'm so sure that like did a big impact on my mom's view of the world and what she had to go through so my life is like tied to what she experienced because i also she's also a single mom right now um and i'm trying to connect those dots and those uh behavioral patterns um through my artwork and also how Buddhism connects to it, because I'm, because uh, in terms of spirituality and Buddhism and like life cycles, there's it's like we're all one big web, and I want to connect all those webs through like that visual language. And as you're connecting the dots and with your ongoing art, of course, and you mentioned earlier that you did not really connect with your Asianness at the time when you are applying for college. So do you have concerns about how this decision plays into Asian American stereotypes? Yeah, it's always there's always it's um sorry, I'm like stuttering. Um it's okay, go for it. It's 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 a big model minority uh argument all over again. Um and the there's this like um because i explained that there's a uh, minority of asians but most asians support front of action but there's this small loud minority that uh, are against it because they have been convinced that it's bad for them um and it's because they don't have the education and uh what was i gonna say 
It's okay. You can think of that for a second. I just want to remind our listeners that as we continue this conversation, we want to hear from you too. So give us a call at 888-720-9677 or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And I want to introduce, you know, joining us now to discuss this uh, topic is Tatiana Watson, who is a high school student from Hartford, and she joins us now by Zoom. Tatiana, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, good morning. Um, thank you for having me. Of course. And I know you've been listening to this conversation, so I want to ask you too, you know, how does this decision impact your own application process and the considerations that you're making right now? Yes. So um, I just, I recently just graduated um, the 15th of last month. And um, for me, um, when I was looking more towards colleges, um, I really want to be in a place where I can feel um, that I'm represented there, that there are people who share my identity who are there, but also be in a place where I can experience other cultures as well. That's very important to me to be surrounded in um, the like multiculturalism, multifaceted lifestyles, rather than just being in with what I'm comfortable with. And also with us is a community organizer in the greater Hartford area, Samaria Smith, and her son, Alexander, who is a rising high school junior. Thank you both for joining us this morning. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. And Samaria, you've also been listening to the conversation. And what are your thoughts in the wake of this decision? Oh, my stress levels have been high ever since the verdict came out. I am, um, I'm afraid, honestly. I th- um, someone said earlier about, you know, the white supremacists kind of on the rise and growing. I feel like, honestly, I feel like we're going back in time. Um, you know, unfortunately, gone or going are the days of, civil rights and um, people being able to um, achieve their life goals without, I can't say without obstacles, but I just feel like now with affirmative action out of the picture, it will limit so, so many people um, from achieving their dreams. Um, There's uh, lots to consider besides just race and um, and nationality, I think socioeconomic status plays a big factor in this as well. Um, you know, it 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 may be very difficult to convey why you should be allowed or accepted into a school, a college or university, just by a letter. And then I I ponder the question of, well, who's actually reading these letters? Are they actually reading them thoroughly? You know, so many questions come to mind about this verdict and how it will impact and trickle down and impact generations to come. And Alex, with what uh, your mother just said, do you, with this decision, do you find it to be difficult to dream? Um, yeah, um, I find this to be, I'm, I'm just to be honest, pretty unfair. Uh, I feel like removing something that has to be put in place due to a very uh, prominent issue in America isn't the best idea. Again, piggybacking on what my mom just said, it feels like we're kind of going back in time. Uh, and I noticed that some of the people who are, most of the people who are in favor of this uh, elimination it, are like 
conservatives and Republicans and things like that. Like someone like Eric Blum, like he's been pushing this and he has continuously failed to get to get what he wanted. And now it's finally happening. And Alex, with what we've been saying, and I and Irene also mentioned earlier how it's difficult as a teenager to really put you know all of those thoughts into a college essay. You know, what are what's what's going through your mind about the new emphasis on the college essay? You know, what goes through your mind? Uh, honestly, I don't like it, but it's the position that I'm in, and it is what it is. I'm gonna have to perform whether I like it or not. And, so, and does this impact the schools that you want to apply to, or how are you thinking about applying to schools now? Uh, no, nah, it doesn't change for me. Uh, I feel like I'm confident enough in myself to where I can get into wherever I want to get into. Well, I love I love that confidence uh, you just mentioned. Thank you for those vibes. And Irene, I want to bring you back real quick because we're talking about college essays, and you mentioned. Um, earlier that you did have some difficulty in terms of of putting your thoughts into words. So what are the implications of this decision on how you feel like your college essay might have been written? You know, is that something that you've thought about? Not exactly. um, But because I figured out my identity later than later in life, I probably would like right now, I probably would have gone back and uh, wrote about my race and um, how that impacted me um, because what this ruling is going to do is make a lot of people racially isolated because the reason I'm so in touch with my race right now is because I met my my community at UConn because they have cultural centers made for specific demographics that they can like they can connect to each other and learn um and like dive deeper into who they are because of um, their race and what like what struggles and what culture comes with it. And before we touch briefly on student loans as well, I want to bring in NPR correspondent Alyssa Nadworn here. Uh, Alyssa, you've been listening to the conversation as well. And this is a complex issue as far as public support, would you say? And what are you hearing? Yeah, so we do have, uh, you know, the public opinion on affirmative action is is interesting. So I, I want to give you some context from the Pew Research Center. Perfect. Um, about half of U.S. adults disproved of colleges considering race and admissions. This is this is it. It differs by race and it differs by political affiliation. So the majority of white and Asian adults disapprove racial consideration at admissions while black Americans largely approve three quarters of Republicans and Republican leading independents disapproved. Now, one of the things that's really interested, interesting about this kind of public opinion data is that it depends on how you ask the question. So people didn't want race to be considered in highly selective college application process. But when the question was framed around the Supreme Court's role in deciding this issue, a lot more people, there was a greater consensus across racial and ethnic groups in favor of affirmative action. So it's it's a little bit confusing, but I think it's really important in that um, people are kind of less interested in having race be a factor in a decision, but they don't want the Supreme Court to be making that decision. 
about whether or not they use race. Does that make sense? No. <laughs> but it's, it's like it's but it, it actually like and I think it, it talks a lot to kind of Irene's point, which was there is a lot of misconception around what's happening. And I think there's even more misconception about what actually happens in college admissions. It's a big black box. I mean, before the Harvard trial at the Supreme Court, we had never really got to peek behind the curtain at how people in that room, <laughs> we talked about, you know, the people who are reading the applications, how that decision is actually made. It's a, it really is a black box. Right. And then we're also, you know, we're a week out of the decision and we have only been yeah. talking about this for let's, you know, 20 minutes and we've already <laughs> hear like so many different opinions. But um, yeah. and we hear the complexity and especially what you just said, you know, my mind's you know, still grappling with it. But based on what we've heard just today, you know, from students um, speak to does it speak to the complexity of how this will be applied? And what are the concerns that you're hearing right now about that? And you I mean, you just mentioned, too, it's a black box. We don't know what happens behind the scenes. And I think it's going to be more so if we don't have kind of like the racial demographic data. So I think as we have alluded in this conversation, there's going to be a lot more emphasis on things like the essay. One of the weird um, kind of quirks about the main the majority opinion from Chief Justice John Roberts is he leaves open this door to have students talk about how race has affected their lives. And so there's going to be a lot, you know, more emphasis on the essay, which you've talked about, but it really is going to be, it's going to be perhaps even more unclear how those decisions get made. And we will definitely be getting into more of what the compliance will look like for admission mm -hmm. officials. But first, I want to bring back some of our students. And Irene, the Supreme Court also blocked President Joe Biden's student loan relief plan. And we know that more than 200,000 Connecticut residents were approved last year. You know, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so I'm a receiver of a Pell Grant. So I was able to be, I was I was qualified to um clear out those loans and hearing this made me really upset because it would have been really nice um i my efc is zero so i yeah i do have a program and i have um, scholarships that can back me up but it's still not enough to like fully pay it back um i have like some loan refunds but it's still like i'm still teetering on the edge of like having to go into a little bit of debt and Devin, how would you say that uh, the student re relief decision factors into this conversation about diversity? Well, we how does it factor into diversity? Okay, that's a good question. I would say that it's because we know that poor, like I was also a Pell Grant recipient, and we know that poor people will use that to get an education, which is so critical. And so knowing that we would have some debt relief, I know some people are asking Biden for more, but he was advocating for some, and to see the court completely get rid of that after a lot of people were relying on it. I mean, I think it's just, I mean, I just think last week was just, you know, the last week of the Supreme Court was just very dis destructive if you were a minority who went to college who wasn't really wealthy. Like, I don't know what the impact will be for the future people who go to college, but I know currently, like, it just, I would just say it's just very destructive, but that's how this court seems to operate. Well, in terms of future college student, I want to ask Tatiana, you know, with this decision, too, does that influence how you apply for colleges or is that a concern for you as you're going through this process right now? Um, for me, it is a concern, um, mainly because it's um, 
they're taking away that kind of support system that felt that could help people um, in order to get out of student loan debt and not have um, these ridiculous amounts of debt that you can see. Um, and I feel as though that by blocking this, it really does limit um, what people feel that they could be able to do just simply from an economic standpoint. Um, for me personally, I don't um, want the thought of money to limit exactly where or um, how I picture myself. Um, but it's also really good to know of all the different like avenues in which um, people can be able to support themselves in order to get higher education. And Tatiana, with what you've been listening so far, you know, you've heard a lot of concerns and and whatnot. Does it does it increase your own concerns in terms of applying for college? For example, like the new emphasis on the college essay, does it cause you to sort of rethink how you want to do that or just any thoughts about about your process to do that? Um, for me, I think it's more, it's being really strong in the essay, which has been um, pretty much emphasized um, throughout my whole high school career, um, being as, um, I guess, as authentic in myself inside of my writing as possible. Um, and especially since that this is seeming to be um a very big component in how college admis um, admissions officers may um, see um, whether or not you can be admitted into their college. I think it's really important that I put my best foot out there first um, with this writing. Well, I want to wish the best of luck to you, Tatiana, with that process. And we only have about a minute left, but Samario, I would love to have a final thought from you, you know, based on what you heard. Any thoughts? I absolutely have a thought, you know, and again, thank you for the opportunity and such wonderful comments from everyone who was on this morning. Um, you know, if they were going to eradicate affirmative action, it would have been really nice. It would have been considerate to have something in place to replace it or something comparable that could kind of just make people feel at ease. I think now this abrupt removal of affirmative action is going to stress people out even more as if we need more stress in our lives. And I think it it proves that um, that we really aren't together as a as a country. And um, we have a lot of soul searching to do. Well, thank you so much for that thought. And I hope uh, we are all a little less stressed, hopefully, with this converse after this conversation. I want to thank everyone and Devin Pierre and uh, Irene Pham. Thank you so much for your time this morning. And NPR correspondent Alyssa Nadwerney will stay with us. Up next, we're going to have Eastern Connecticut State University President Elsa Nunes join us for the conversation. And for our listeners, how do the Supreme Court rulings on affirmative action or student loan relief affect you? Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare.
ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're discussing the Supreme Court's ruling against affirmative action and race-conscious emissions. And here to share their thoughts on this decision is a Connecticut University president that has long championed educational diversity. Joining us now is Elsa Nunez, who is the Eastern Connecticut State University's president. And still with us to answer your questions is Alyssa Nadwerny, who's NPR's correspondent covering higher education and college access. Uh, Thank you so much, Dr. Nunez, for joining us this morning. Good morning, Catherine. Good to be here. And you recently announced your retirement at, after 18 years, Dr. Nunes. So I want to start this conversation first with a congratulations. Well, thank you, Catherine. It's uh, 18 glorious years and uh, it was a great fit. And I'm looking forward to the next few years. I'll be at Harvard teaching it in the Graduate School of Education. And you've been with us this hour listening to the conversations with law students and parents earlier. Can you respond to some of the concerns that are voiced by them? You know, were there things that jumped out to you or were you not surprised? Well, no, I think the students were all very intelligent and they responded from, you know, from a place of experience and you have to respect that. And, uh, you know, they have lived lives that have been in many instances, complicated by uh, issues related to their race or ethnicity. And so uh, what they say, you have to listen to very carefully because because they it's meaningful and uh, they express it with a lot of feeling. Uh, but I wasn't surprised, no, uh, Catherine. I think that um, there's a lot of confusion out there about the decision and who, what institutions it affects, what institutions it doesn't affect. And the students are, you know, young people like the uh, student in high school, they're afraid. They're afraid that they're not going to have the opportunities that students before them have had. And we certainly value their very meaningful comments and, and conversations. And we have also heard from one arts major at UConn, Irene Pham. You also solidified Eastern's role as the state's public liberal arts institution. So on that note, why was that important for you to establish? Well, I think, uh, you know, it's uh, Harvard. Harvard was the first liberal arts college in this country. It's world renowned. It's it's what the uh, she she education should be, if I can use that word with uh, tongue in cheek. It's the the model. And what has happened in this country is that liberal arts colleges are small and they're wonderful institutions. They're elite, uh, but they could not address the, the, you know, the uh, demand that there is for liberal arts education. And in many cases, they're expensive. And so uh, having a public liberal arts college in the state of Connecticut was really important. And 
uh, you're allowed one per state. And uh, there's the Council of Public Liberal Arts Colleges that we belong to. And it's an opportunity for someone in the state of Connecticut to get a first class liberal arts education at a price point that's affordable. And you were the first Latina university president in New England and have pushed for college access for underrepresented students. And, you you know, you wrote about this, including successful programs at Eastern. But first, can you tell us, you know, what is your reaction to this decision, especially 18 years later? I can't imagine what you've experienced and seen. And what does it mean for admissions process and diversity on campus today? Yeah, I said earlier in my introductory comments that people don't realize <clears throat> that this decision does not affect Eastern or Montclair State University in New Jersey or uh, most of the publics in this country. It affects the elite private institutions and elite, some elite public institutions like um, University of Virginia is a good example uh, 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 of an institution that's public but elite and elite. Uh, so in terms of the public institutions, uh, all community colleges still have open access. Eastern has access uh, and affordability at its you know, heart of its mission. And so do most public universities in this country. So the decision doesn't affect us. But we were always very careful to say, yes, we are predominantly a white institution, Eastern, but we will always have ways in which students from modest backgrounds, whether you're black or white or brown, uh, will have access to a first class education. And so we have access programs and those are varied. But uh, I think in summary, I can say they are six week programs in the summer where you prove your worth and we give you an opportunity. You didn't do well in high school or as well as you could have. And we give you a second chance. And during those six weeks, you take two college level courses. If you get two B's, and you do well in the writing supplementary course, then you get admitted into Eastern. Uh, and I, most people get admitted that way when they join the program through the summer program, opportunity programs. And that's about, I would say about 85% of the people that participate get the Bs. And, you know, with the access to, and especially with institutions now having to grapple with what compliance would now look like, do you, do you have any concerns at this early stage at all? Well, I think it was Alyssa when she was talking about the, the, the chief justice's uh, opinion, uh, the opinion of the justices, and he wrote the opinion. And he writes, and I'm going to quote, nothing in this opinion should be constructed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion on how race affected his or her life. And so concretely, what that means is at Harvard, Alyssa's right, it was a black hole until it, it was just, you know, revealed in the in, in the debates at the Supreme Court level that that Harvard has three tiers of admission process. It has first where an individual reads the application and race is considered that it has a regional committee that considers the people from a region, the individuals from a region. And then it has the overall committee of 40 people that make the final decision. And there's something called lopping, L-O-P, is done. And in both the first and the third level, there are there are race considerations. And so what, what I understand the decision to say is, for example, in that first level where an, uh, a person is reading the application, 
they rank the application one through six in certain categories, and that is academic, extracurricular, and then personal. And I think there's even, yeah, I think personal is combined with something else. So theoretically, if I read the decision correctly, and I'm not a lawyer, I would say that you can now, a student can write, for example, if you're African-American, I was discriminated against uh, and I was living in a small town in the South and I was, you know, prevented from really fulfilling my, my, my potential because of the racism that I endured. That would go directly toward uh, the applications category of personal where the student can say, I had courage and overcame that diversity. Look at how well I've done. Secondly, as an example, I could say, if you're a Hispanic student living in Hartford, you could say, look, look at what I did in the Hispanic community. I helped with health-related issues in my community where people weren't getting health, good health care. I was out there helping my community get better health care. That would then be connected to personal on the leadership role. And so that person would get a one. And the person that I just mentioned as an African-American would get a one in those categories. Six is the lowest you can get. One is the highest. So the Chief uh, Justice Roberts is saying you can consider their discussion of race and ethnicity because it connects to a trait or a quality that Harvard has identified as being important. And I think that's really important for the people who are listening, particularly the students, to know that you should talk about your experience as a minority or a person of color and that that will have some worth in the process. And, you know, we've been talking so much about the the admissions process and this emphasis on the essay. We also spoke with Vern Granger, who is UConn's head of admissions, about this new emphasis on student statements or essays to communicate their race or ethnicity. Uh, let's take a listen. You know, as a 16, 17 year old, you know, sometimes it is difficult to not only have a full grasp of of how that has impacted their life, but, you know, but then to translate that to a writing sample that universities are looking at, um, you know, we have our concerns about that. I think one of the things that that we are thinking about are ways that we can provide um, you know, instruction, guidance, whatever the, the, the appropriate term is to, to help students in understanding what it is that we're looking for and trying to provide, you know, again, again that guidance as far as what it actually means to talk about your, your own lived experiences. And this is also something that we've heard from students who were in the conversation earlier. Uh, Alyssa, I want to ask, you know, what kind of pressure does this ruling put on admissions to to interpret it? You know, how will this be applied? And do you think this will become an issue? Well, I think what's happening now with the admissions folks I've talked to is they're consulting with their legal counsel to figure out kind of like what... Um, what is still allowed within within the scope of this decision. We're going to get some guidance from the education department. We've got a lot of um, national organizations that work um, with admissions advisors that are kind of putting out their legal guidance. But I wanted to just echo two really important points that I just heard, which are, you know, this decision really applies to just a very small number of colleges. So there's uh, almost 4,000 colleges and universities in the U.S., maybe a little bit more than 200 
have admissions where fewer than 50% of applications get in. So that's just a really, really important point I wanted to echo. Um, and, you know, I, I think one thing that also really became apparent in the Harvard case and kind of looking at the Harvard data, and I thought that was such an excellent kind of explanation of that admissions process. <laughs> <I'll say. laughs> um, one thing that really emerged from that that data set is actually kind of like white wealthier students were receiving a lot more kind of preferences to help them get in, including things like legacies, you know, if their parents had gone to Harvard. Um, also, athletic recruitment had a big bump. And these far outweighed kind of the racial um, potential kind of like bumps, uh, for lack of a better explanation, than with affirmative action. So I just wanted to kind of like make that clear. One of the things we learned from this admissions dump was actually kind of race um, accommodations or, or, or affirmative action actually played far less of a role in the admissions process than things like being a child of um, an alumni or having a connection to a donor or having a, an athletic recruitment. Well, and Dr. Nunez, yeah. we have about a minute left, but I want to ask you, you know, with what Alyssa just said and what we just heard from Vern Granger as well on the college essay, you know, are these considerations that you're making? Yes, of course. I think that Alyssa was very articulate on this point, and so was the the, uh, the gentleman who spoke about the admissions uh, criteria. And I, I think I think that we can uh, give students the leg up in terms of training and, you know, coaching that they need to write these essays. But I do think Alyssa is absolutely right that uh, it is a small uh, number of institutions, as I said earlier, but more importantly, I think that we should not shun away from talking about our backgrounds and the effect that our backgrounds have on each of us. And the students have to have to understand that that's going to be an important consideration in the admissions process, even though it's not race alone, it's race connected to some other quality that you have that you feel proud of. You've been listening to Eastern Connecticut State University President Elsa Nunez and NPR correspondent Alyssa Nadborny. They will both be staying with us as we continue this conversation after a quick break. And you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Back with us to discuss the recent Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action is Eastern Connecticut State University President Elsa Nunez and Alyssa Nadwarnim, who's an NPR correspondent covering higher education and college access. So we've been talking about uh, UConn's head of admissions, Vern Granger, touched on his concerns that this decision about race-conscious priorities could ripple outwards beyond academia. Let's take a listen. There's a misperception that these cases are impacting only undergraduate admissions, but we, but, but 
there is an understanding from our standpoint that that these cases definitely were going to be going beyond undergraduate admissions and going into graduate and professional school admissions, but potentially they could have an impact on scholarship and financial aid programs that that are race conscious or other programs at institutions that that utilize again the the consideration of race among many factors in 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 their processes and Alyssa, so we just heard what Vern Granger said you know how could this decision about race conscious priorities ripple outwards beyond academia yeah well this is this was a big concern before we got the decision um, of course, it still remains a concern, but I, I do want to point out that I've talked to a number of legal experts who said kind of the only legal issue that was before the court was the consideration of race in admissions. So, um, you know, of course, this could be interpreted many different ways. I think one of the kind of lessons that we've learned around affirmative action being banned is the case of Michigan, the state um, banned affirmative action at public institutions. And what happened at the University of Michigan is there was kind of this chilling effect. And so there was almost like um, a fear or a hesitancy to use race in any way. And and this is real. I mean, this is what happened. So this chilling effect, this worry that it could expand beyond admissions, you know, could happen. Essentially what happened at the University of Michigan is they kind of backed off their use of race in factors, say, for scholarships or for programs. One example is um, they had kind of um, a support system for students on campus. When it was started, it was mostly targeting um, Black Americans enrolled. And by, you know, in the years after that state ban, it kind of eased off to include all races and um, to target more kind of first generation, first person in their family to go to college. Now it serves a, a mostly white rural student body. And so that that's kind of one example of how this decision, although quite narrow in terms of what it says about race and admissions, could kind of trickle over to things like scholarship, you know, like certain programs that target students by race. And Dr. Nunez, we have a couple minutes left here, but I would love any final thoughts you have um, with well, what Alyssa just said. And are, are you optimistic it, for the future? It's so it's so interesting, Catherine, because the Attorney General of Missouri, Andrew Bailey, wrote a letter the same day this decision came out and said you can't have race-based scholarships. So hmm. with, I don't know what the legal people are saying, Alyssa, in general, but I do know that actions are, have already been taken. And so yep. this will, and even people are talking about affirmative action in employment, is also on the table. So whether these things are going to be, you know, uh, litigated at, at, at a different point. But I did want to say, Catherine, that I think the one thing that I'm disappointed that people are not talking about is uh, admissions through athletics to the elite public, uh, to the elite universities and colleges of this country. Because in some of the small private elite colleges, half of the students admitted come in through athletics. And we're talking about legacy, but we never talk about athletics. And many of those students go through a separate admissions process. Well, Alyssa, I actually just, we, yeah, we got a, a minute left, but I would love oh. for you to react to what, what she just said about <laughs> athletics. Well, I, yeah, that was the kind of one of the biggest takeaways from the Harvard data is actually athletic preferences trumped legacy preferences and That's certainly right. racial That's preferences. Right. And we're silent on that. And if you look at the data, you know, uh, the 10-year data, listen, the decision, it shows that from uh, 
I think it was, yeah, 2808 to 2019, those numbers have been, you know, it's about 10%, no, 11 or 12% of African-American students are black students, and then another nine to 10% of Hispanics, and then 20% Asian, and then the other 60 are white. But the Mm -hmm. athletic numbers are huge, huge in these schools. I think it's also worth noting that a lot of the schools are a lot of the sports we're talking about are things like skiing or sailing or rowing. And these are sports exactly that skew for much higher income individuals and the schools that students go to. I mean, whether or not they offer those sports. Yeah. Yeah. How many schools, uh, you know, have squash teams? So uh, just as quickly as skiing down the hill, in 30 seconds, Alyssa, would love to ask you really quickly about legacy emissions. You know, how does this impact that? 30 seconds. So there is a big push to get rid of legacy admissions. We saw that in previous places like the University of Georgia when they got rid of race in admissions. That was shortly followed by getting rid of legacy. We saw that complaint against Harvard on Monday. I think that this is going to be we're going to see this push and uh, we'll see what schools do, how they react. Will they get rid of it? Beautifully done. Thank you so much. Uh, You've been listening to Eastern Connecticut State University President Elsa Nunez and NPR correspondent Alyssa Nadwerney. Thank you both so much for your time and helping us understand this uh, topic better. It was great to join you. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. 